Well, today is Sanctity of Human Life Day. I don't know if you're aware of that, January the 22nd. Um, when the great tragedies won the worst Supreme Court rulings that's ever was handed down, I'll put it right next to the Dred Scott decision. And uh, both of those were seven to two rulings. They weren't even close. But what was done to Dred Scott was unthinkable. And um, what was done to the preborn is still unthinkable. I think it's 47 years ago, uh, a different Holocaust was per perpetrated upon our country. And so it's still a sensitive topic. And um, But today we, we pray for things to turn around, that the sanctity of life will once again be established in our country. You know, in... Uh, I, I guess they're estimating like 50 million have been aborted since that. Um, I've worked with um, Save a Life down in Jackson. We actually helped establish the local Save a Life there. I was on the board there. Great people to work with. Very involved in pro-life causes there in Jacksonville. Operation Rescue, anybody remember that? Uh, I even asked Brenda if I could participate in that. She says... If you don't get arrested, <laughs> I said, oh, I promise I won't get arrested. But uh, people don't realize that abortion was legal in this country before Roe v. Wade. It was just legal in certain states like New York. A lot of women went to New York. Uh, Carolyn Gibson, who I worked with in Jacksonville, had three children and aborted her fourth before Roe v. Wade in New York because she didn't think her and her husband, Roger, could afford another child. They were not believers. But she came back to her home after a, a flight to New York and back. Something was wrong. She went into a deep depression, um, suicidal-like depression. Something was wrong. Something was wrong inside of her. And some ladies invited her to a Bible study and she gave her life to the Lord and got healed from that decision and dedicated her life, the rest of her life, and I, I got to work with them. I hope that her and Roger can come and share their story one day. I've invited them to come from Jacksonville and come and share, but um, we should never give up the battle. Um, one, one January, we ought to load up a van and all go that want to go to Washington, D.C. for the March for Life. I've been in a couple of them, but the one that never gets on the news—it's—it's news. it's really, it's really impressive. Uh, I went one time. I went. Ronald Reagan was the president, and he addressed the people through a speaker, uh, a live phone call. But uh, it is an impressive uh, de declaration that God still respects life, whether the courts do. Supreme Court is not the last court of the land. There's a court in heaven that's going to determine all the injustices. So, um, And that's going to happen. Not long ago, I did a series on the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. And um, I'm going to go back to Revelation. These, these letters to the seven churches ushered in a lot of imagery. This is why Revelation, people just steer away from it because it's... It's got all kind of imagery and visions and, you know, weird animals and, you know, 
beings and and so people will kind of steer away from it because it's like it's complicated it seems complicated uh, I guarantee you can pick up five different commentaries on Revelation and you'll get five different opinions about some of the stuff it, it is across the board you know well it, that really means this and and um, and what I'm going to share is from chapters 4 and 5, the follow-up to those seven letters. Um, and, and I've titled this A Picture of Heaven because you can say that chapter 1 is a revelation of Jesus to John. He ha He's on Patmos. He has this vision while he's sitting on Patmos. And he begins to describe what Jesus says to him, what he sees, and he tells him these seven letters he wants him to give to these seven different churches in, in the western part of Asia Minor. And, um, and then right after that, um, he is taken up into heaven. He is invited to step up into heaven. Now, whether he literally went there or just in the spirit realm went there while he was on Patmos, but the language is so particular at the start of chapter 4. But I want to just kind of draw attention to the prominence of heaven in the New Testament. If you were to do a word study or a word count in a, like BibleStudyTools.com and say, uh, just like search for heaven and let the filter be the New Testament, it'll show you that heaven is mentioned 66 times in the book of Matthew alone. So it's, it's more prominent than what we generally think about that it's just not casually mentioned here and there. It, it is a driving theme, especially with Jesus. A lot of those times when it occurs in Matthew, it is in the phrase, the kingdom of heaven. And he uses that again, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. He even said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world, it's of heaven. It's from a different place. Um, all through the Sermon on the Mount, he refers to heaven, including the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, the, the residence of God. But we know God's presence is everywhere, but it's this location of God's authority and power. And he said that, that God is the one who rules from heaven over all of his creation. But heaven is a dynamic place. It's a dynamic place. It's a real place. It's a, it's a reality that, you know, maybe, maybe heaven is closer to this planet than what we know. It just doesn't show up on a radar. Right? Because there was prophets one time that was, you know, his... His servant was getting all frightened because there was an enemy surrounding the city in Samaria. You remember that? And he says, what are we going to do? He says, oh, no, don't worry about it. He says, Lord, open his eyes. And when he opened his eyes, there was like chariots of fire all around them. His angels, they, you couldn't see them with the physical eye, but they were there the whole time. Angels are invisible. They're only visible when they declare themselves and show themselves in the form of a person. So who knows if heaven might could be very close, but it's 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 a celestial, it's spirit. And just said, well, the spirit is it real? Of course, it's real. You know, God is not made of substance. We don't even know if He's 
if we can see a form, but you know, we do we do get these uh, anthropomorphisms that uh, you know they use images of a human to refer to God, the hand of God, the face of God, right? And uh, so heaven, though, is a real place. And if you get down to the end of Matthew, and the last thing, the Great Commission, Jesus said this, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. In the both realms, he said, I have all power in heaven. Huronos is the Greek word for it. It's very prominent in Jesus' words. He said, lay up treasure in heaven, not in this life. Um, he constantly refers to heaven being the realm of where we're heading. Um, he tells the thief on the cross that he doesn't use the word heaven, but he uses the word paradise. He says, where we're going, I'll take you with me where I'm going, and where I'm going is paradise. So it's a, it was a place, a literal place, um, Hebrews talks about the, the real tabernacle of God is in heaven, that the tabernacle Moses got the dimensions of were on the scale of what's in heaven. And so there's a literal place, there's a real place called heaven. So I, in thinking about that, I want to take you to Revelation chapter 4. And uh, it seems like that, that Revelation is not particularly telling us and proving anything to us about heaven but it mixes in the reality of heaven with everything else that's going to be going on here. A lot of what's in Revelation is what's going to happen here, but it's connected to heaven. So if you're there in Revelation chapter 4, we're just going to track through these two chapters. They're kind of linked because there's two main visions, but the visions are linked. So Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open. Here it is, in heaven. So he's on Patmos, but he looks up. He's having this vision of, of the Lord anyway. But he looks up, and a, and a door opens up above him from heaven. And the voice I heard, first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. After what? After what he had said to the seven churches. And at once he said, I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven. So it's obviously he's transported in some way to that place and there's someone sitting on it now there's no doubt that this was a vision of heaven itself um, but the Lord is showing John what was going on in heaven not just he heaven the place but there's stuff going on in heaven and he shows John if you look at verse 1 he says um, and the voice I first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said now you have to go back to chapter 1 where I think it's verse 10 where he says, I hear a voice behind me like a trumpet saying to me, write on a scroll. And so he recognizes the same voice that spoke to him before in verse one, chapter 1. He says, this is the same voice. I recognize this voice like a trumpet. And in the same way, he said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. He heard the voice of the Lord when he said, on the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit. So here he's caught up in the Spirit. This is all about the working of the Holy Spirit. And he's leading John into this vision, a vision of the throne. He says, someone is sitting on it. Now what follows next is he doesn't describe anything about the person sitting on the throne in specifics of form. But what he shares is this radiance of light. 
of colors. And he begins to try to describe. I, 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 I would think that John is strained by the vocabulary that he has available to say what's going on and what he sees. In verse 3, and the one who sat there, he says, I saw someone sitting on the throne. The one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, um, a, red, a reddish tongue, a rainbow that shone like an emerald, uh, this radiant green encircling the throne. And it's a rainbow kind of like going back to the covenant that the Lord made with Noah. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. Who are these people? Who are these beings? They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. Is it getting interesting yet? So who are the 24? There's 24 thrones around the throne, and he just kind of like describes this throne. It's kind of like giving a little bit of an idea that what happened on Mount Sinai, when God came down on the mountain, there was thunder, lightning, rumbling. The, the mountain shook the presence of God. This is, this is his presence. Just his very presence on the throne created lightning, thunder, rumblings. Isn't it amazing? You know, we're going to get to see that one day ourselves. Some of us sooner than others. That's right. You know, I'm not eager to see it right now, but, you know, we might all see it together when the trumpet sounds. Like, That'll be all right, too. But these 24 elders, I, I, I was reading, and some say these are 24 select angels. And I was like, angels? And then others say well, they're representing the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, and it's like the whole church together. And I think probably there's greater evidence that that's probably closer because they're dressed in white, which is the color of what the saints are adorned with, and they have crowns. And both of these statements are referenced in the letters to the churches. On two separate occasions, the Lord spoke to two of these churches that one, he's going to give them a white raiment to wear, and another, he said, I'm going to give you a crown to wear. So... I think it's easy for us to say this is, and here's the question. And if Andrew was here, he would answer the question. <laughs> when John is called up into heaven, is he, is he getting a picture of the future, or is that literally what's going on right then? Obviously, some of it is futuristic because he's talking about you know, Israel being attacked by that old dragon and and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. So there's a lot of futuristic tribulation. But think about this. There's 24 elders on the throne and they're sharing in this moment. It's 
almost as though he's getting a glimpse of what it's looking like when the full body of Christ gets there. But it could also be that, you know, if, if, the, if there are apostles, I wonder if John recognized himself. It would be pretty strange for the Lord to show John a vision, and he's in the vision. Oh, I do make it. <laughs> I made it. <laughs> he might have recognized it. I made it. Yeah, I got in. I'm on one of those thrones. All right. I'm not going to be a loser. You know, but yet he's, he's seeing all this unfold, and, and he's just trying, he's just hanging in here trying to describe it. And he goes on and talks about what, what happens. He says these, these uh, 24 elders and these creatures who have eyes in front, these four living creatures who are there, and they have eyes in front and back. And what is that about? There's just some... This is why the book of Revelation will always have people coming up with crazy interpretations. Because it lends itself to crazy interpretations. So you just have to be careful what you're reading and who you're reading. But all that John describes is what he sees as a reaction. He doesn't even try to describe the one sitting on the throne. He's just like, this is what's happening around him. These radiants of colors and these lightnings and thunder and rumbling. And, and I, I think by design, he's not trying to describe him because he's so overwhelmed by the effects of his presence. Look at verse 7, and he describes these four living creatures. This is where it gets like science fiction. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face of a man. And the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who was and is and is to come. Now, what does that make you think of when you read that? Ahem, uh, are there Old Testament references that kind of identify with this? What about Isaiah 6? When he saw, and it says later that each of them had six wings. They had six wings. So, and underneath their wings are eyes. There's two, there's two, in Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel describes living beings covered up with eyes, and he describes all four of them with these faces. A lion, an ox, the face of a man, and an eagle. And when Isaiah has his vision of Jesus and the throne of God in Isaiah 6, he sees four living beings, four living angels, special seraphims, six-winged angels, flying about the throne, and what are they saying? It's pretty close. Not exactly the same. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord all God, God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Here they're saying the Lord who was and is and is to come. So it's kind of fitting for this moment. This is kind of like a time moment. I think heaven was so excited when Gabriel left that day to go encounter Mary. Because all of history waited, and I don't know if they're time conscious, probably not, like we are, 
Like, man, this took a long time for us to get to this point. They probably not even think about time, but they know that on earth, everything rode on that one moment when the Son of God would descend into a baby and become the Savior of the world. I think maybe there's a, when, when all of this is going on and he sees the vision and there's this action in heaven that is ready for all of this to happen. The angels are ready. These four living beings are ready. And, and there's just a lot of energy there. And I think it's because it's coming down to a crescendo. John is not engaging in dialogue with any of them at this point. Um, in verse 9, it says, Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him, he's just writing, he's writing what he's seeing. He's just describing what he's observing. And give thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before him. And I think this, this is probably more of an indication that these are people representing the Old Covenant and the New Covenant people of God. They fall down and they worship Him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord God, to receive glory and honor and power for You have created all things and by Your will they were created and have their being. So I, th I think this finishes up chapter 4 where he's just describing what he's seeing and what's going on around the throne. But here comes chapter 5. And this is the only time he makes a reference to anyone, the one sitting on the throne with any kind of reference to an identity, and that is he sees in the right hand of the one who sits on the throne a scroll. He says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. And here's where John stops just observing and he becomes part of what's going on. He, he begins to weep and he says, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders, one of the 24, said to him, said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So an angel calls for someone and says, Who's worthy? Who is worthy to, to open this scroll, to break the seals? And, there, and there's nobody. Nobody is responding. And John begins to weep. And then one of the elders comes to him and says, Don't weep because there is... Someone who can break his line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. It's a pointing back to the messianic kingship of Jesus. He is the son of David. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's pointing to his kingship. But when he turns and sees, he doesn't see a lion, does he? In verse 6, he says he sees a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, Encircled by the four living creatures and the elders, the Lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Some people kind of thought, what's that mean, the seven spirits of God? Seven is a, 
is a number for completion and wholeness. It's like the full weight of the Holy Spirit was there encompassing all of this. So you have a line that is strong, mighty, intimidating, and he's going to open and open that scroll and break the seals. But when he looks, he's a lamb. He's, he's the redeemer. He's the one who sacrificed himself. It, he said there's evidence that the lamb had been slain. But that doesn't mean the lamb looks defeated, does it? Because very few lambs have seven horns. This is a lamb with power, and his death, the Son of God's death, is what empowers him to do what he's about to do, and this is to open the scroll to break the seals. Now, this all starts in chapter 6, the breaking of the, uh, of the seals. In verse 7, he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures... Well, this is a pretty big moment because everybody's getting into this. The four living creatures, these are winged creatures. The 24 elders, they, all of them fall down. You don't see the, the living creatures doing that very much, but they're doing it now along with the 24 elders. And each one of them had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. You know, we've talked before about the, our prayers, are ne they never evaporate. They never go away. They're contained in heaven. God keeps them as an incense before Him. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll. They are uh, they're confirming the right of Jesus to do what he's about to do in chapter 6. He's, he's going to open the scroll. They're going to find out what's inside that, what's coming out of that scroll. You are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals because you were slain. And here's a reference to his blood. And this is the evidence that he had been, that he had been slain. There was some evidence on him, uh, wounds or maybe piercing or whatever. There was evidence that he had been slain at one time. With your blood, you've purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nations. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. None of this is casual inference. All of this is weighted with truth, with reality. You know, it's kind of like... It's kind of like what our country is dealing with and other countries are dealing with racism where there's this tension and one of the verses I used Sunday about a holy nation, it's a holy ethos. It, it's, it's the ethnicity of, it's a new ethnicity. And this is why the writer of, of Paul said many times, a couple of times that there in Christ there's no Jew or Gentile, there's no bond or free, there's no rich or poor, there's not male or female, that we suddenly take on a uniqueness of who we are in the body of Christ. There's not, none of that is an identity that's attached to the kingdom of God. It's its own identity, its own race, its own nation. He's taken from every tribe, every nation, every groups of people, whether Asian are Middle Eastern, are Caucasian, African, whatever descent. From all of those, he makes one people, one entity, one church. And it's too bad that we don't embrace that. 
But in heaven, that's what it's going to be. We're going to be one ethnicity. We're going to be the children of God. None of that other stuff will matter. For some people, that's the only piece they're, they're ever going to get. Is when we get there and all these labels start dropping off us because they don't matter. They don't matter in heaven. I guess uh, the language here just intrigues me is that his redemptive work, when it mentions his blood, he's purchased people who were enslaved in sin and bondage and he's delivered them. I got to listen to Paxson and Sabrina's podcast and, uh, from last week and just neat testimonies how, you know, you never, you never would think people come from such a background until you hear their stories like, wow, that's interesting. How about the redemption of God? How about the rescue of a, of a college student's life from just bad decisions and, and now they're going forward in the kingdom of God? That's what this is about. The redemptive work of Christ is who rescues college students, who rescues children. You know, your grandsons, your granddaughters, the best thing we can pray for them is that they would encounter Jesus. Because he's the one that changes them. Church does not change people. You might meet Jesus in church. You might meet Jesus in some other place other than church. But meeting Jesus is what changes us. This is, we have this because we have been changed. This is the result. Well, let me uh, finish up. Verse 11. And, and John said, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000. Almost sounds like Trump's hyperbole, doesn't he? Great, many, wonderful. Thousands, thousands upon thousands, they encircle the throne and the living creatures and the elders. These are, th- th- this has just prompted this enormous response of myriad of angels and in a loud voice in a loud voice they were saying worthy is a lamb who was slain goes back to what was said about Jesus before he's worthy to take the scroll and open it but worthy is a lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and on the sea, and all that is in them, saying, now, I'll tell you, this is really amazing. That he's hearing voices everywhere, in every dimension of creation. And this is what they're saying. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever." And ever the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. This is just introducing chapter 6, the breaking of the seals. The book is not boring, is it? What's going on in heaven? It's one continuous worship service a continuum of worshiping God. (laughs) And I know, I know how we think. Someone's going to say, is that all we're going to get to do? 
That's going to get old after a while, isn't it? It's not old to the angels. It's kind of like seeing some of the sights we saw in Washington when we went to the falls and took pictures, and some of them just don't even seem real. And you're standing there, and you're just in, you're captivated by the beauty and the majesty of creation of, of mountains and streams and snow and all of that. And, this, and we're just kind of like, we can't take enough pictures of it. And that's here. That's not there. That's here. We were made to worship. The purpose of man is to worship God. A.W. Tozer, when he wrote The Purpose of Man, he was, this is like, we were made to be worshipers. We were made to worship. And this is why the enemy wants to rob Jesus of worship. This is why he wanted Jesus to bow down. He, he wants that. He wants that. That the Lord is, is getting. He wants to hijack that. He wants to be worshipped. No wonder such evil music abounds because it fosters that kind of satanic, demonic worship. But we are made to worship Him. And if there's anything in Revelation, and I encourage you to read it because we, nobody's going to understand all of it, but there's enough there that will make you a little bit more uh, eager to see what it's all about. Um, I'll finish up with this. The reason we sang Blessed Assurance, um, I'm, I made my rounds to Glen Haven, to our TFA people in Glen Haven this morning. James and One East were doing well, and she was eating a pretty good breakfast. And um, I walked over to two doors down to where Ollie Moore is, and I was absolutely blown away by how well he's doing. There was two ladies there, an older lady, younger lady. They were speech therapists. They were feeding him. And I walked in, and he tried to talk to me. And uh, I was just telling them he, he was our ministry of peppermint. He was our minister of peppermint. And uh, if everybody came in church, he would give them peppermint. And he was trying to engage me. And she looked at him. She says, now what church do you are you a part of? And he was trying to tell her. He was trying to tell her. I was like, wow, this is amazing. This is so different from the last time I saw him. It was really discouraging. And uh, I told her it's first assembly on Skyline. So when I left, I could hear her talking to him. So that was your pastor, and he was trying to talk to her. He was still trying to talk. Well, my visit was about to hit a crescendo that I really wasn't prepared for. Because everything was going good. I was like, this is so good. Thank you, Lord. I go up to the second floor to see Minnie Johnson. And she's in. she's got a roommate there and this little lady. I'm walking. I open the door and she's so excited to see me. You know, I'm coming to see Minnie on the other side of her. She, <laughs> she's so excited to see me and I engage her and talk to her. And, and then I ease on over to Minnie and I talk to her. And, and uh, like many times, I was singing a hymn with her after... We talk and share and pray. and But this time I just started singing Blessed Assurance. Well, Ethel, I'm not going to give her full name, Ethel next door, right next to us, started singing with us. 
She jumped right in there. She was like, hey, we're having church. <laughs> Little African-American lady, just full of energy. Well, I got to pray with Minnie, and she got to having a Pentecostal fit over there. <laughs> she was whooping it up. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. And, and she got me going. I thought the more she, I, I got more animated praying. <laughs> And I'm praying, and, and I don't know what Minnie's thing is. Wow, what's going on here? <laughs> and I walked by, and she was still shouting and praising God. And, and I talked to her a little bit, and I said, Well, you have a blessed day. Well, how I cannot have a blessed day when God sends somebody like you in my room to help me to have a blessed day? It's like, I walked out of there like, Do I have to pay someone in mission? And it, it just reminded me, in a place that is so difficult to walk in, where people are toward the end of their lives and you just, it, there's some people who don't want to go through there. They, they just don't want to see that. There's this ray of hope that still re resides in a person's heart. That little lady had her own church service over there. She was leaning up against the wall with the pillow behind her and she was just, she was just bouncing around on that bed, worshiping God. She was having a time of her life. And I walked out of there and was like, you know, Lord, I think I got more out of this than they did. You know, I, I, think, I think they filled my cup up instead of me filling their cup up. It just reminded me, though, people never lose their desire to worship. No matter how bad off they are. And, I, and Mama Jean, I'm, I'm telling you a lot of my secrets, okay? Mama Jean is a waitress at the Waffle House right there across the street, if you know what I'm talking about, at Glen Haven. And usually when I go in there, I feel compelled to go buy something because I have to park in their parking lot because there's no parking in Glen Haven. So this little lady, I become friends with her, Mama Jean. Here she comes. She told, I told her what happened over at Glen Haven. She said, we have a ministry in our church that goes over there every week. And, and has church. Christian little lady, I'm telling you, God's got more people doing more ministry than we know. You just have to get out and see the evidence that God's got a people that's doing stuff. They're out there praying with people. They're out there ministering to people. And somewhere in all of this, God's going to prompt you and I at some point Hey, don't avoid the tough situations. Don't avoid someone who's really been sick, who, who we think, well, they don't need a visit. Well, maybe they don't need a 30-minute visit, but there's a lot of them that would like a five-minute visit. And just be wise about it. Because I can tell you, when we prayed with Christy Dupuy, it was our turn to take food there, yes, last night. And we prayed with her, and she is doing so much better there's ministry just waiting to be done with people who have been through a lot of a lot of trials and tribulation and it means so much for you just for us to do something and pray with them so I want to just encourage you stop by Glen Haven sometime just if you go in you, there's a nursing desk to your left it's on the bottom it's on the basement level it's a nursing station to the left and just catty-cornered from that is one of Smith's room.
and two doors to the right is Ollie's. You go to the elevator, you get off, and the first door to the right is Minnie and Ethel. <laughs> Just spend a little time with Ethel, and she'll recharge your battery. So let's stand together. <clears throat> Thank you, Lord. Take the hand of someone close to you and just, uh, here we are, January 22nd, years young. Lord, help us to have the greatest year we've ever had. Help us to have the greatest ministry we've ever thought think uh, possible that we can influence people for your kingdom. Thank you for what you're doing in Chi Alpha through people like Paxson and Sabrina, through students that were on the outside looking in when they came here. <clears throat> now they're part of the net, of casting the net in for young people who are in troubled waters and bringing them to safety, bringing them to a, a place of life and peace, healing and wellness and wholeness. Help us, Lord, to recognize those places that we can step into that are wide-open opportunities of ministry. We pray over one these. We pray over many, over Ollie and over Ethel and so many that are in that place that daily there's a challenge for just to live, to get through, to see the next day. But Lord, may you have for them moments of encouragement. We pray for Christy. We pray for Janice Charters. We pray for Carl Roop, for Junior Wyatt, for Joanne Boschel. We pray for those who have battled sickness and that you would bless them and heal them for Darlene, for Leon, for Raymond, that all of them who's went through surgery for Brother Wyatt, that they would heal rapidly and quickly. But Lord, let us be instruments of encouragement. Show us the open door. We might not be called up into a heavenly vision, but there may be opening doors that we don't see that we need you to remind us. That's, that's your opening. You're the one who's opened that door for us to speak life, to pray, to encourage, to sing a hymn, to do something to help that person get along better in life, Lord. Use each of us in this room to encourage someone, someone specifically this week that needs you, that needs to hear truth, needs to hear that they're going to get through this, they're going to make it, and by the help and grace of God, they will see heaven one day with their own eyes. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> amen. God bless you.